0: Welcome to the Bethlehem Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. This is the morning service of Sunday the 1st of May 2011, entitled A Royal Wedding. And the Bible readings are taken from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 32, and Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 to 9. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. If you'd like to be opening your Bibles this morning to two passages. Revelation chapter 19, beginning of verse 7. And with your finger there, turn back to the book of Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. While you're turning there and while you're holding your place there, did anybody catch anything special going on on Friday? <laughs> did anybody miss anything? On Friday? Does anybody know, not know what went on on Friday? Um, of course, not just this nation, But uh, literally people around the world uh, absolutely enthralled with this royal wedding that was taking place. And of course, there was a lot of pageantry and a lot of beauty and things that uh, that were there. But it was really following that that the Lord kind of changed my mind. And, And I want to speak to you this morning on the thought of a royal wedding. As we come around the Lord's table, the Lord gave us this table to remember him until he comes. That's our hope. That's what we're looking for. We're listening for the trumpet sound, for the shout. And As we look in our Bibles this morning... I want us to look at a few things that I hope will be a blessing to you. I'm going to have to talk fast. You're going to have to listen fast because you're saying, you know, I had just a few thoughts on my mind that I really felt like God wanted. The problem is when I started putting them down, it kept multiplying, just like the fish and the bread, as sermons do a lot of times. And so uh, I just want to move through, through some thoughts that I hope will be a blessing to you. First of all, in Ephesians chapter 5, let's begin reading in verse 21. I'll invite you to stand with me to honor the reading of God's holy word. Again, beginning in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21. He says, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh." Notice verse 32, he says, "This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church." Now if you flip over to Ephesians cha- or, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 19, reading three verses there from verses seven through nine. The Bible says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, write, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. Father, we thank you today. We thank you again simply that we can be gathered together here. We thank you, Lord, that as we gather together here, that we have your preserved Word before us. We thank you, Lord, that we have your Spirit within us. And, Lord, we pray at this time, Lord, that you would get this flesh, this man, this man, out of the way, Lord, that Your Word would be quickened and made alive into our hearts, that by the power of Your Spirit, You would speak to hearts as only You can. Lord, we need not have anything accomplished here today that's done by man. Lord, as You look upon our hearts, as You recognize our needs, Lord, not because we have any right to demand it, but because of your grace and because of the fact that we stand in such great need. Would you do that work within us, Lord, that only you can do? For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen and amen. It would have been very hard to miss the royal wedding on Friday, unless you locked yourself away in your room and just shut out the lights and shut everything out, because whether it was TV or radio or newspapers or whatever, anything that could carry the media, then it was there, and it had people's attention. Why? Well, we could list all kinds of reasons, but you have to admit it was uh, a little more glamorous than the average wedding of the day. (laughs) And of course, as I listened to many of the words that were spoken, My prayer is that those words that were spoken one to another as husband and wife would be taken seriously, that they would mean them from their hearts, that it's not just some religious rite that they have gone through. And even some of the words that were spoken from the pulpit, that they would heed those things. But in the end, that royal wedding with all that went into it, the phenomenal amount of onlookers that were there, people camping out at least a couple of nights on the lawns, many of them just to be able to to be at the front of that row for them to come by for that moment that they were passing by. You and I got to see a whole lot more on the TV if you watched it, I'm sure. But it grabbed people's attention. And of course Prince William and Kate Middleton are now one in the flesh. But we read here two things of course in Ephesians we we find the Lord giving this great comparison that he gives of the relationship between his church And the Lord Jesus Christ, the bride and the bridegroom. Let's get all this out of our heads that churches aren't denominations and buildings and all of this. You, the people, covenanted together. The Bible gives us this awesome picture of us as His children being the bride of Jesus Christ himself. But there's something interesting. You know, we saw all of this, and as a matter of fact, I realized that most of what was said as far as the vows that were taken in the wedding on Friday were pretty standard, traditional Anglican vows that are taken and that are used by most other churches in the West, as a matter of fact. It was a glorious affair, but as we look into the Word of God this morning, there is a lot of difference in what we saw on Friday, the royal wedding, and the royal wedding that we read about in God's Word. There is a big difference in the traditions of marriage as we do it in the West, and the oriental styles that we would be reading about from a Jewish-style wedding, if you would. So many people that live in the Western world, which, let's face it, that's where the majority of Christians live. We find that so many of them, as they're reading through God's Word, they... They miss so much of the significance of just what it is that Jesus is giving us a picture of here in this illustration of the bride and the bridegroom. In his teaching, Jesus himself draws analogies not from our Western marriage customs, but from the Jewish marriage customs. These would have been very common and very known, the people around that he was speaking to. And of course, I know I'm old, but I wasn't around 2,000 years ago. <laughs> and one thing that I find very interesting, the laws, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but sometimes when you start, <laughs> you start digging on a certain subject and you find what is, should be reliable sources Then you find another reliable source, another reliable source, and they're all differing all over the place in a lot of these things. Now, I'm not an expert on 2,000 years ago in Bible times and the Jewish customs, but I've read a lot, and I've tried to probably look at least 10 or 12 different sources to try to put together what we could really tell for certain at least. Because just like today, we do have in general a westernized culture of how our marriages, weddings take place. But they differ, one from another, slightly. And so it would have been in that time. There are certain things, certain aspects that would have been a part of it. But the timing, the exact order, and some of those things would have varied somewhat. I just believe with all my heart that as we Once again, come around the Lord's table to remember our Lord today. I believe that if we can look at a few aspects, because you see, as glorious as that wedding was on Friday with all the pageantry and all that went into it, one of the things I want to tell you about is not a wedding that is going to take place in the future, But a wedding that began 2,000 years ago, and that is still going on, and boy, it's going to have the grand finale of all grand finales one day at the marriage supper of the Lamb. A 2,000-year-long wedding? Precisely. Because you see, as we look at the Jewish tradition, it wasn't just a something that one well, to start with, the betrothal and the engagement have nothing in common with each other of the way we look at them today. But it wasn't just going down to the church and having a little ceremony and saying the things, and that's it. There are many things we could look at, but let me give you I think it's five things that I listed here that I hope will be a blessing to you today, as you think about a royal wedding, that I hope you're not just an observer but that you're part of. As we look, first of all, the very first thing that certainly would have to take place regardless of whether it was Western or Eastern cultures, that's the choosing. The bridegroom has got to have a bride chosen or choose a bride. Now, if I get some of these pronunciations wrong, you forgive me, you can come and get the spelling and pronounce it yourself afterwards. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. But the first thing that I want to tell you about is, is this choosing, this first step in the wedding ceremony. And in the Hebrew, it was called something like Shadukan. And Shadukan was that first step, it was the choosing of the bride by the father. <laughs> you see, it was actually the father's responsibility, the father of the groom, to choose the bride for his daughter. Now, if for some reason the father wasn't able to carry out that responsibility, he could appoint what was known as a Shadkan, which was somebody that would be his representative that would go in his place. I'm not going to have time to turn and read all these scriptures. If you're taking your notes, you can jot down. That's well illustrated in Genesis chapter 24, verses 1 to 4, when Abraham was not able to go personally to choose Isaac's bride, but he sent his servant in his place. Why? Because Abraham was just too old. He wasn't able to make the journey, but he still had the responsibility that that wife be chosen. Now, notice in the Word of God, in Ephesians chapter 1, notice what it says in verse 3 and 4. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Notice verse 4. According as he hath chosen us in him, that's Jesus Christ, God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy, holy and without blame, before him in love. Now, I know you'll never get your head completely around that. Our God that is outside of time, our God that has all knowledge, that knows everything, that before the foundation of this world was ever laid, he knew you. He'd chosen you to be the bride of his son before the foundation of the world. God chose you. As a matter of fact, Jesus, between the time that he instituted this table that's before us and the time that he was nailed to the cross, when he was speaking to his apostles, he told them in John chapter 15 and verse 16, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. So many times. We try to think that we've made some, done some great thing in choosing to follow God. Folks, we can only love Him because He first loved us. He's done the choosing. He'd done the choosing before your physical existence was even seen here, but God already knew you. God already knew you. You see, Prince William had to choose Kate Middleton to be his wife. Every husband and wife here today, at some point, there was a choosing that had to take place. But I want you to know, try to get your head around the fact that though this wedding, we'll get there in just a moment, though this wedding technically maybe began 2,000 years ago, it was being planned long before that. It was being planned by God the Father before the foundation of the earth. Matter of fact, the first step in the wedding ceremony had already taken place when God chose you. So we find that, first of all, there's the choosing. Second, there's something else about the Jewish wedding that's the covenant. The covenant. Now, that was called a ketubah in the Hebrew, and it simply means to be. Written. Written. It was the marriage contract that was written down once the bride was chosen. It included the provisions. It co- included the conditions of the marriage and all of those things. It's clear from examples that this is, was often agreed between the fathers alone with the bride and groom not even being part of it. But it also seems that by Jesus' time, it was not uncommon for the prospective groom to take the initiative, but never to go to the bride. <laughs> Always to go to the bride's father. Always went to the father. Common practice would have been for the father and the groom or the groom alone, to travel to the father's house, to the home of the bride, and he would begin by going to that father and literally negotiating the terms of that marriage. As I begin to read, it's not always done in exactly the same order, the same things, but there's some important things about this covenant that was always there, regardless if they did them a little differently in order. There was first what was called the Mohar, M-O-H-A-R, simply the bride price. <laughs> you had to pay for a bride. <laughs> she didn't come free. There was this bride price, which is just that. It was the price that the groom would agree to pay for the bride, and that had to be accepted by the bride's father. Scripturally, spiritually, spiritually. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, the Word of God says what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? Why? Because he says, for ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Just as that bridal price had to be agreed, and the price was paid for that bride, I'm saying to you that the Word of God teaches us clearly. We are not our own. We have been bought with a price. We belong to Him as the bride. And in case you missed it, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, for as much as you know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the tradition from your fathers, but with the precious Blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot in the Jewish wedding. Yes, the choosing had to take place. But after the choosing, there was the covenant, the ketubah. And there was this bride price. That needed to be negotiated, taken care of, and paid. If they didn't get past that, there was nothing else. There was never going to be a wedding ceremony. But you see, once that had been agreed, there was another part of this covenant. The bride did actually have the choice to accept or to reject. Once once the groom and the father had come to their agreement, once the bridal price had been settled, She could either accept or reject to go with him. And we find that, again, you can look back if you want in Genesis chapter 24, verse 58, after Rebekah was chosen to be Isaac's wife, when it came time for Rebekah to leave, to go, she had, right there in that verse in verse 50, she had the choice, will you go with this man? She had to accept or reject. Even though all the agreements, listen, the agreements had already been made. The bridal price had already been agreed. But she could could accept or reject to go along with it. Now, today, who's given that same opportunity? Who's given the opportunity to accept or reject the proposal to be the bride of Jesus Christ Himself. Very simply, you are. You are. Whoever you are today. I'd like to read something to you, which are the words of the great London preacher C.H. Spurgeon. In his writing on the marriage supper of the Lamb, may I read these words? He says, He was asking who had been invited to the wedding feast. In one sense, he says, you are all called to it. Oh, my hearers, there is a call of the gospel to each of you. We are bid to preach it to every creature under heaven, and we do preach it, leaving none of you out. Whoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. Whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The call. Behold, the bridegroom comes, is to the foolish virgins as well as to the wise. And if you do not come, it is not because you were never invited and never entreated to come to Christ. By the Spirit of the living God, I implore you men and women to seek the Savior's face. I may never address you all again as perhaps I've never addressed some of you before. But by him that comes in the clouds of heaven, I entreat you to fly to Jesus, the great and only Savior. Seek his grace now that you may see his face with joy in the great day of his appearing. But this is not exactly what the text means, for although there is a blessedness in being called, it curdles into a curse if being called. Sinners refuse to come to the Savior. Who then are they who are specially called to this marriage feast? Well, first there are those who are so called as to accept the invitation. Have you come to Jesus? Are you trusting him? Will you have him? Does your heart say yes? Then he is yours. There was never any unwillingness in Christ to receive the guilty. The unwillingness is in you. And if the unwillingness has gone from you, since it never was in him, take him and have him forever. Take him and have him tonight. When Abraham's servant wanted to take Rebekah to Isaac, her mother and brother said to her, Will you go with this man? So would I say to any young man or woman I may be addressing, Will you go with Christ? Will you have Christ? If so, he will have you. If you are willing to have him, you are among those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Hallelujah. You see, the simple truth is today is that you've been invited. The terms have already been agreed. <laughs> the bridal price has already not only been agreed to, it's been paid. But the next part that has to take place in that covenant will you go with this one called Jesus. Will you accept his invitation? You see, if the invitation to wed were accepted, then there were some other aspects that had to be gone through between the two parties, the bride and the groom. Another one was called the mikvah. You know what mikvah literally meant—a ritual. Immersion (laughs) (laughs) that was taken to symbolize spiritual cleansing prior to the formal betrothal that was required of both the groom and the bride. Now, some look at this, and when they look at the spiritual side, they see that simply as the baptism, which Jesus Christ himself first did and then commanded us to follow in that likeness once we come to him by faith. But you know, I think it goes even deeper than that. Yes, that's vital. That's important to us. But when you stop and think, baptism is of itself that which is symbolic of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ whereby we, by faith, can truly be cleansed not by the water in the baptistry but by the blood of the Lamb, praise God. That's where the real cleansing takes place. We could say, yes, but but Christ, the sinless one, he, he didn't need any cleansing. No, he didn't until then on Calvary, he took upon him the sins of the world. The Bible says he actually became sin for you, for me. The simple truth is it was then in the shedding of his own blood and the taking and the sprinkling of that blood on the mercy seat that, that cleansing became possible for all of us because, praise God, it was sufficient. I love, I think I, you know, hit on it last week, maybe a week before, I don't know. <laughs> 1 John chapter 2, verse 2, it says he's a propitiation for our sins, but not for our sins only. for The sins of the whole world. What Jesus Christ did the price that he paid there on Calvary, he did it for us all. Folks, to be his bride, we need to go through the ritual immersion. Symbolically, the waters of baptism, but literally the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says we're washed by the word. We know that as we look there that this was something that once it was done, then and only then, after that, up to this point, the bride and groom have never been seen together. But once, once the choosing has taken place, and this, once this covenant has been agreed, once that price has been paid, and they go through the cleansing together, the next thing that takes place was a public announcement. <laughs> You see, following that immersion, the couple would appear together. And it usually took place under the hoopah, which was the canopy, which is still used symbolically today in the Jewish weddings. We find that that canopy was actually symbolic itself of the wedding chamber, it expressed the intentions of this couple to come together in the wedding chamber. After this immersion took place, they would appear together for the first time. Now, many times it was literally publicly before a whole crowd of people, but it was required that it had to be before at least two witnesses, that they came and they made this public announcement. This would be the place where usually the groom would make his wedding vow. Folks, this isn't some ceremony. Look at all this taking place here. But the words would be something to this effect. As they stood there and they announced publicly their intentions as bride and groom to be one. And he would take a vow and he would say something like this, Thou are consecrated to me according to the law of Moses and of Israel. You probably said a whole lot more than that if you're married today. (laughs) But in effect, almost everywhere I said, and you know what? The bride didn't actually have to say anything because her silence was a sign of her acceptance. What we're saying This bride and groom, once this had taken place, the normal thing was for them to come together. After all had taken place between them, then to make it public before others. Is that not exactly what we see that the Lord requires of us when we come to Christ? One of the most used verses and trying to show me and how to come to Christ in Romans chapter ten and verse nine, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on Him shall not be ashamed. There is no difference between the Jew and the Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all that call upon Him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, shall be saved. You see, between the bride and the groom, it had to take place from within, between the two of them, before that it was made public. But once that had taken place, it had to be made public. It was necessary for it to be made public. And of course, we find that all of this that's tied up in the covenant is what brought about what was called the betrothal or the espousal. The two were betrothed or espoused one to another. From that moment, the bride was declared to be consecrated, to be sanctified, to be set apart exclusively For that bridegroom. It was this type of betrothal that is precisely what we read about. We read about Joseph and Mary in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18 when it says that Mary was espoused to Joseph. Now, folks, many times people think that's kind of like being engaged. No, look at all that's already taken place here. This is why I'm saying, you know, the wedding wasn't just something that took place in a 30-minute segment or an hour even. There's a lot already taken place, and this is all part of the wedding. The simple truth is, is that once that betrothal was made, once this covenant was made between this bride and this groom, you know what it took to get out of it? divorce a decree of divorce and you know what this is kind of exciting to me the bride couldn't do that anyway it was only the groom that could do that and that came right back to something else that was only because of adultery because you see recognize the bride is still a virgin at this point The consummation has not taken place yet. And yet, as the virgin bride, she is just as much required to be faithful to this one to whom she is espoused, to whom she is betrothed, just as strong as the marriage as if it were complete. Everything was done. You see, It was usually at least a year from that point before that they would actually come together to live together as husband and wife, that they would come together in that relationship of oneness that would consummate that marriage still a year away. But during this betrothal, there were some responsibilities that had to be taken care of in that year the groom had to do some things, and it would be natural for him at this point to return to his father's house. There were some responsibilities. His primary focus, to prepare a dwelling place for his bride. To prepare a dwelling place. And of course, in Bible times, that was usually done not by going out and building a new house, by adding on additional rooms to the father's house. (laughs) His responsibility. That's the place that the bride would be taken to. That's the place where he would start his family. How many times have you read those words that are so familiar to us in the Gospel of John chapter 14? And how many times have you realized this is Jesus Christ? Just after he's instituted this table that we come around this is a promise that he's making to his bride. This is part of the wedding ceremony that makes us the bride of that groom. When Jesus said to them, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Listen, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I'll receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. This is precisely the kind of words that have been normal for the bridegroom to be saying to his bride once the betrothal had been made. But he was going away and he was preparing the place where they would live together for all of eternity. But he promised her, I'm going to prepare a place for you. When I go prepare that place, I'm going to come again. And I'm going to receive you unto myself. And where I am there, you may be also that we can be together. I'm saying, folks, it gives even more richness, more meaning and understanding this wonderful promise and what it was part of that Jesus was saying to us. Not the groom. Not the groom. But the groom's father was the only one that could decide when that preparation was finished, and that that groom was ready to go get his bride. The groom couldn't decide that himself. The groom's father had to do that. In Mark chapter 13, verses 32 and 33, listen, this is recorded right here in Matthew as well. This is what we know as the Olivet discourse. This is when Jesus is talking to them about his second coming, his coming again to receive his bride. And he says, but of the day and the hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the son, but the father. Take ye heed, watch and pray, for ye know not when the time is. The groom. They were already betrothed. The simple truth is that you couldn't have committed adultery against them any more at the end than there is now. That's done, it's sealed. They are husband and wife in the legal sense. The legal part has been taken care of. The bride had some things to do, too. She was supposed to be making preparations for the groom's return. (laughs) She was supposed to be getting things in order, all of her things, to be ready. You see, the betrothal in place, signed, sealed, and taken care of. The groom, about to return to his father's house, there was one other thing that he would do before he left the bride to go away. That was called a -A -A M-A-T-A-N. You know what that is? It's a bridal gift. (laughs) The groom would give his bride a gift. Now, it's interesting as you begin to read about this. I mean, what it really was was a pledge of his love for his bride. It was given as a reminder to his bride During their separation, his love was there. His love was real, that he would be thinking of her to remind her of his promise that he was coming back, that he would be returning. This could happen in a lot of ways. Sometimes it was just as we do today. Sometimes it was done with rings. Sometimes it was the exchanging of cups. You can find all kinds of different gifts that are used in this ceremony. And You know, if we go through the Word of God, how long would it take you to make a list of all the gifts that the groom left you and I to remind us of his love for us, to remind us he's coming again to take us back to the bridal chamber, the place that he's prepared for us, You see, probably the one that would come to mind above all else is, of course, the Holy Spirit. We could take time, if we had it, to read all from John chapter 14 right through John chapter 16. We could could read all about this, even into chapter 17. We could find that this was a tremendous gift that he gave to us. Notice what he says in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Let's read verses 13 and 14. He says, In whom ye also trusted, speaking of Jesus, after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. You see, Jesus gave us that gift. But I want to say to you today that one other thing that He gave us for that very specific purpose was the Lord's table that we have before us. He gave us that to remember Him. The drinking the cup was often a part of this ritual that was taking place during the betrothal process, both in the sealing of those agreements, even in the final exchange between the groom and the bride at his departure. It's my understanding also that it wasn't unusual for this drinking of the cup that took place as part of this maton. It was not unusual at the end, for the bride and the groom. You know, And I got this from a couple of Messianic Jewish sites. They ought to know what they're talking about. That often they would take and drink of the cup just before he departed to go to the father's house. And he would promise her, I'll not drink of this again until we come together. And we read these words as Jesus is there with his apostles. And they're drinking of that. And is that not the very promise that we read about in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, when the Lord Himself is gathered around the table with His apostles. Matthew, chapter 26. Notice what it says, beginning in verse 27 there. It says, And He took the cup and gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it. For well, this is my blood of the New Testament. Same word as covenant that we're talking about. <laughs> Which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That was not an uncommon thing for the groom to say to his bride when they parted that they would once again come together in the Father's house. And, of course, the choice has been made. The contract is in place. The betrothal is finalized. The groom returns to the Father's house to prepare the place for his bride. The choosing, the covenant, the collection. That's called N-I-S-S-U-I-N, Nisuin. It comes from the word Nasa, N-A-S-A. And you know what it means? To carry. (laughs) To carry. It's a description of the groom coming to carry his bride away, to live together in their new home that he has prepared, especially for her. This is a part of the ceremony. He goes away, he prepares the place. And it's usually about a year later. Nobody knows the date. When the groom's father thinks he's really ready for her, he sends him back, okay, it's time to go. And he goes to carry her away to the place that he's prepared for. Oh, she would have been waiting, anticipating this day. But you see, part part of the Jewish wedding was that it was to be a surprise when he came. The groom would, would, would leave the father's house with, with the groom's party and they would begin this procession to the home of the bride. Of course, although the bride was expecting him to come, she didn't know when he was coming exactly. Sometimes, apparently, it even took place at night. They would be carrying all of their torches through the streets as he went to surprise his bride as he was ready for her. One of the groom's, company that was going to collect the bride with him. As they got near to the bride, he would begin to shout with a shout. And he would say, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And of course others would hear this. And then there was the sounding of the shofar, which was the horn that was usually made from the, from the ram's horn. This horn, this trumpet would sound. And of course, the bride had no idea when he was going to arrive. She was supposed to be prepared at any time. She was supposed to be prepared with all the necessary things right there by her. Even her bridesmaids were all supposed to be on call all the time, ready for when the bridegroom cometh, that everything would be in order. Of course, Jesus touched on that too in his all of that discourse when he gave this parable in Matthew chapter twenty-five. It begins, he says, Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto the virgins which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise and five were foolish. They that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them, but the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, and our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so. Let there be not enough for us and you. But go ye therefore to them that sell and buy for yourselves. While they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour when the Son of Man cometh. Jesus, using this illustration, to explain his own coming after the groom received his bride together with all of her female attendants. Now this wedding party is getting pretty big. There's a big crowd of them. And at this point, they would return to the father's house. Now I would just say to you, and we don't have time here, but boy, I want to say to you, you see, this is the day we're looking for we know that our groom is coming. We don't know exactly when, but he's given us some idea. He's given us a general idea. But just as when that bridegroom came in the Jewish tradition, there's gonna be a shout, the Bible says, and there's gonna be a blowing of that trumpet, and we're gonna know that he's coming in 1 Thessalonians chapter four. And notice what it says in verse 16. It says, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Just like in the Jewish tradition, he's coming. And of course, I can only give you this quickly. After the collection of the bride, the next thing that was a part of the Jewish tradition was, of course, the consummation. As I searched, I found some slight differences, but this always had to take place. The bride and the groom, as they got back to the father's house, they would be escorted into the bridal chamber, that hoopah again. Prior to entering the chamber, the bride remains completely veiled. Nobody could see her face. The bride and the groom, they enter the bridal chamber. And for the very first time, even though that betrothal took place a year ago, for the very first time, they come together as husband and wife and have that physical union consummating the marriage. And then the groom would come out, and he would announce to all the others that the wedding had been consummated. I think that, you know, I'd never even thought about this myself. I'd never even really thought about this, this one simple verse, but I began to look and I thought that was probably what John the Baptist had in mind. When in the Gospel of John chapter 3, notice what John said there in verse 29. He said, he that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. And that's exactly what would happen. The bridegroom was the one that had the bride. But then when he would come out and he would announce it, and everybody else would rejoice that the wedding, that the marriage had been consummated. Now, I don't have time to go to all the different verses, but I give you this, and it's something that will be familiar to you. May I put to you that it's not until that last trumpet sounds, it's not until after the Lord comes back for you and I that as we begin to read what's going to take place at that time with you and I. You see, this was a different kind of union. Even though that legally... That bride and that groom were already united. This consummation had to take place. And nothing else really compared to this. And I began to think on that with what the Bible teaches, of course, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when it says in verse 51, it says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must be put on immortality. I say to you that there is absolutely no way in the world that you and I, in these old corruptible bodies that we're still living in, there's no way that we can experience the kind of union that we're going to experience one day when we've put on the incorruptible and sin no more has a part of us and these old sinful bodies no longer have a part of us. We, I believe there will be a spiritual consummation with our Lord Jesus Christ like we've never experienced before. A oneness with Him like we've not been able to before. But it'll take place, folks. There's many other places we could look in the Scriptures, but... I want to leave you with this thought. You see, there was the choosing. There was the covenant. There was the collection of the bride. There was the consummation. But fifthly, there was a celebration. There was a celebration. Following the groom's announcement that that marriage had been consummated, that the final part of the Jewish wedding would be underway, the wedding feast, the marriage supper, these festivities, and again, you know, I don't, I don't want to put things in where it doesn't need to go. But I like it. I like it that it just so happens that this marriage feast, once once that wedding was consummated, once that marriage was consummated, this feast went on for seven days. Seven days that they would celebrate. Now, during that seven days, listen. <laughs> During that seven days, guess where the bride and the groom were? They were still in the bridal chamber, the Father's house. Everybody else was celebrating. They were there. They would celebrate, and then, only then, after that seven years, would they all come out together. Would they leave the Father's house? Folks, there's so many things there. As we look at what we believe is going to happen in these end times and in the end days when the Lord comes back. And, and, and you've heard me preach it and teach it so many times on the second coming of the Lord, Him coming in the rapture for His church and, and the coming to the earth with His church. And, and you know, the second coming is, is not something that happens instantaneously. It begins instantaneously, but it, it lasts for seven years, and all this is going on. And for that seven years, you see, all of this is part of the wedding. It's not just a ceremony that takes place somewhere. All of this from the choosing by the Father right down to the point that when this contract is made that you and I have in our hands today the marriage contract, the covenant that has been given to us, the bridal price has been paid by the blood of Jesus Christ himself. Folks, the real question just simply comes down today. Have you accepted the contract, the covenant, have you accepted it? You see, I've got a lot of other verses, but I'm out of time. That passage that we began with in Revelation chapter 19, the Bible says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she would be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Right Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. May I say to you, you have been chosen. The written covenant has been agreed. The bridegroom is coming to collect his bride. And then that marriage will be consummated. As we finally have those glorified bodies, a union with Christ as never before. Folks, the Bible says let us be glad and rejoice. There's going to be a celebration. Let me tell you something. What you saw on Friday is going to be nothing. Nothing in comparison to what we're talking about. The royal wedding of all royal weddings. A royal wedding like nothing this world has ever experienced before. And guess what? It won't matter if you've got a TV or not. It won't matter if you've got a front row seat because everybody's going to see what happens when this one's finalized. When he comes back with his bride, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, I thank you today, and Lord, I know that I've rushed, and yet I thank you for the patience. Lord, there's some such beautiful things here. As we come around this table today, Lord, I know that you gathered there with your apostles, I don't believe that it's coincidence that even in what we are doing here, until you come again, that it was given to us, your church. Lord, is a gift to remember you by. Remember you and all that you've done for us. Remember that wonderful promise that you're coming again for us. So now, Lord, as we come around this table once again today, I do pray, Lord, Lord, that you would bless the bread and the cup. Father, as we come, I pray most of all that as we look into our own hearts, as we examine ourselves, that, Lord, as best we can in these sinful fleshly bodies, Lord, that you would show us if there be any sin, if there be something there that would be a division between us and you, Lord, it is not the cup and the bread that will do the work in our hearts, but it's he whom it represents. And, Father, as we take of this bread and drink of this cup, Lord, may we be reminded of all that you are to us. May we rejoice in listening for that shout and that trumpet to sound. But, Father, I pray here today that you know the hearts of each of these. You know each one here, whether they've accepted or rejected that Invitation from Jesus Christ. And Lord, you know today if there are things within hearts that needs to be dealt with because, Lord, our prayer, our desire would be that all can have sweet communion with you today, not because of this bread and this cup, but because of Jesus Christ and because our hearts are right with you, that all is as it should be. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. I'm going to ask two of our deacons to come, and as they come, I would like to just simply remind you that as we come around the Lord's table today, I am not your judge, but the Bible is very clear. This table of remembrance was given to his church. And it was given to us to come around in unity. Mind and heart and soul together as a body in unity with one another but in unity with Him. I would encourage you today, first of all, that if you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would beg you, please don't take of this bread or this cup. Not because that we are better than you, by the grace of God, that makes a mockery of what we are doing here today. And I would encourage you today that if you have put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the first step of obedience that you should take is to follow the Lord in the obedience of believer's baptism. And in doing that, become a part of a local church. where To you are part of a body. That, that body can come together. And that really is our purpose today, here to, to today as a church to come together around this table. Now, if you're here and you're a guest, may I say this, and I mean it with all the love of my heart. We don't we don't practice open communion for anybody that wants to come. We believe that the primary purpose of this table is for this local church. If your conscience is clear, we will invite you as a guest. If you are saved, baptized and part of a church of like precious faith. And we would invite you, if you feel comfortable, that you can join with us if you're in agreement. But, folks, we can love you with all of our hearts, but the purpose of this body is that we be unified in our faith. The Bible teaches us very clearly, even those that are together in that, that I would give you one final thing. Folks, If there's known sin in your life, there's nothing this bread and cup can do to deal with your sin. But the one that it represents can deal with that sin. And his desire today is that you would deal with that, not through expecting this to do it, but you would deal with that so that you can then come around the table in fellowship because there is nothing dividing you from him. He tells us very clearly in his word, Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. So today, I've given you these simple instructions, and it's today is a time that whoever you are, whatever you are, this table can serve a purpose in your life. Whether you can come together and take of the bread and the cup, or whether you can let it be a testimony and a witness to you, The purpose of this is not because eating the bread or drinking from the cup will make you any more a Christian or will do anything for any sin that you may have. He gives it to us to remember the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as this body takes together with that in unity, it can still remind you of those things. And if you're here, and if there's something in your life that is not as it ought to be, then I would plead with you right now that in the quietness of the moment, we're going to take just a moment, quiet prayer. Ask God to show you in your heart if there's things that need to be dealt with. Let God minister to you personally, to you. Let this be a time of sweet communion between you and the Lord. No matter what else, it can be that for you if you'll open your heart to him right now. Father, you know the hearts of each man, woman, boy, and child here today. Father, as we come once again, we pray, Lord, that as we come to celebrate around this table with what we believe to be one of the two ordinances that you've given to your church, Lord, as we come, I pray that, Lord, you would help us if there are those things that would take away our minds, our focus, our hearts from that which we come here to remember. Help us, Lord. Lord, that we would be focused upon our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, all that he has accomplished, all that he is doing now, and all that he has promised us for our hope in the future. Lord, I pray that it would be a time, that if there be anything within us, Lord, that is displeasing to you, that you would show us that, that we would have the faith, the strength, the courage to deal with it right now so that our fellowship with you could be sweet. And Lord, I pray for those that both feel and can take of this this bread and this cup I pray that it would be a sweet time of communion for them, but, Lord, also for those that may be here, whether for whatever reason, whether they're not saved, whether there's sin in their life, whether they come from, Lord, uh, uh, another group that would not be in agreement with with the teachings and doctrines of this church, or for whatever reason in their own conscience. Lord, I pray that it can still be a time of sweet communion and fellowship with you as we remember the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, that body that was nailed to the cross on Calvary, and the blood that was shed for the remission of our sins. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Mm